strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning. Kyle Dowling here with you today for Strong Voices. We're coming to you, of course, from the Calm Radio Studios here in the Red Centre on Aranda Country in Ubuntu, Alice Springs. Great to have your company this morning. We're coming to you on Aitken FM 100.5 here locally. And, of course, coming to you right across the nation on Vast Channel 911 and could even be coming to you perhaps even overseas online at uh, karma.com.au. Today's, of course, uh, Thursday. It's the 5th of September 2019. I'm your host today and you'll have my company up until uh, 12 o'clock on the program. We're coming up on Strong Voices. Uh, We're going to be hearing from Charles Sturt University academic Dominic O'Sullivan, who shares his opinion piece on the Queensland government's recent decision to extinguish native title over the land in the Galilee Basin, allowing Adani to go ahead. Also this week marks uh, Child Protection Week, and today we are going to hear from a team leader from Territory Families, who's going to be discussing a bit about uh, what what that week means. Also, of course, going to be heading uh, across to Western Australia, where the Indijbandi people will be launching a new community hub uh, this weekend in the town of Roban in the Pilbara region. And this is uh, all a part of their process in terms of moving forward as a community. Also, students from the community of uh, Nullumboy here in the Northern Territory recently travelled more than 4,000 kilometres to present a book at the Sydney Opera House uh, yesterday. This is all a part of uh, Indigenous Literacy Day, which was yesterday on Wednesday. We're, of course, as well going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country here on Strong Voices as well. We're going to go to a song now, though, and then we'll be right back with our first story. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Well, last week, the Queensland government extinguished native title over tracts of land in the Galilee Basin so the Adani coal mine could proceed. This gives Adani freehold title to the land and means the Wangan and Jangalingu native title holders' objections no longer have the same legal significance. Associate Professor of Political Science at Charles Sturt University, Dominic O'Sullivan, is a Tiwara man from the uh, North Island of New Zealand. I've always been interested in Indigenous politics across the world and how different jurisdictions and different Indigenous peoples respond to the colonial context, how Indigenous peoples resist it, how states modify it, and and how they reinforce it, as um, has been the case in in, in Queensland last week with the extinguishing of of native title. In terms of the process, it's it's a fairly simple one. The Queensland government, under the law as it stands, has the legal power to extinguish native title. There are certain processes that have to be gone through and 
and so on, and in the um, case of the native title holders objecting to, to Adani, they've been through uh, various court processes and, and they've lost. Um, one, one of the issues there is that um, some of the native title holders did actually um, agree to the Adani proposal and have a land use agreement with, with Adani, but others uh, didn't. And um, what the decision means legally is that um, those people no longer have right of access to their land. Um, indeed, Adani has already spoken to the police about um, how it's going to enforce its exclusive right of possession. So um, it is, from, from my point of view, a, a very one-sided law. And um, one of the things that is, is interesting about it, too, is that um, in 2007, the United Nations General Assembly adopted what it called a Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And um, 144 member states voted in favour of the dec Declaration, four voted against. Australia was one of those, New Zealand, Canada and the US were the others. But in 2009, there was a change of government. There had been a change of government in Australia and the Australian government decided it would be a good idea to accept the declaration as an aspirational document. But it has never really worked out what those aspirations might be or what they should be, especially in relation to land, because one of the provisions of that declaration is that development shouldn't take place on Indigenous lands without the free, prior and informed consent of the Indigenous land owners. But, of course, what Queensland's done last week is... Um, through a legal instrument, determined that the um, the local indigenous peoples are no longer the landowners. So it's a, a rather simple way out. It's effectively a land confiscation, um, which of course is a colonial strategy all over the world. But in most parts of the world now, uh, governments are, are reluctant to use that kind of power because they've come to accept that it's morally problematic. As a long-time observer of, of what uh, has happened, not only here in Australia, but uh, internationally, I, I think, uh, you know, the picture has been painted very clearly that the powers that be when big money is talking will go down the road of making a decision for economic benefits. But looking at it from the global perspective of signing up to something and then virtually uh, thumbing your nose at it, uh, how does that sit? Well, I think there are two points here. The first is that the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is not binding on member states. It's only binding if they um, write it into their own laws in some way. And um, the ACT government has done that in a, a limited kind of way, not in respect of land rights, but in, in, in other aspects of, of the Declaration. But it, it's, it's fairly limited. And the second point that I think... Is, is important is that um, when Australia accepted the declaration, uh, just as was the case for Canada, New Zealand and the US, they accepted it as an aspirational document. So they weren't saying that they were committed to the letter of the law, I suppose. They were committed to some, some general ideas of, of upholding um, Indigenous rights in a very broad and, and vague sense. But um, during the debates at the UN, Australia, like those other three countries, had all expressed rev reservations about the um, right to 
um, free, informed and uh, prior consent. So um, they had expressed their reservations. But the point that I think is is important from a uh, democratic point of view, because as a political scientist I'm interested in how democracy works, and how, which is not always the same as how it's supposed to work. Um, but one of the principles of democratic equality, one of the foundations, is, is property rights. And I think you can make an argument that property rights should be equal for everybody and that Indigenous property rights shouldn't take a, a lesser priority just because they're Indigenous. Yet that appears to be what's happened in Queensland. Again, looking at it from a global perspective, where do Indigenous nations sit at the UN and do they have any political clout? A significant influence. This um, declaration was worked on by Indigenous peoples uh, from all over the world. Almost every Indigenous population in in, in the world contributed in some way over 20 years. And there was an awful lot of effort went into negotiating with uh, states so that uh, they were in a position, or at least 144 of them were in a position to to vote in favour of it. Um, So I think it's fair to say that the declaration wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the work of of Indigenous peoples, including um, people from Australia. Um, So that's certainly a measure of influence. Um, The United Nations has also established a permanent forum on Indigenous issues, which uh, meets annually, I think. And again, there are Australians on that forum. And um, it's an opportunity for... Uh, negotiation with states. It's an opportunity for the, the sharing of ideas and values among Indigenous populations whose experiences of colonialism are often uh, very similar. Um, and although they're all culturally different, the underlying right to culture, for example, is is a, a claim that, that people share with, with other Indigenous peoples around the world. So there are those opportunities for for influence. And I think the other thing um, that's important about the Declaration is that it says to individual states, um, or when Indigenous peoples refer to it as a a source of authority, what what, what they're saying to the state is that it's not just us who uh, says that this claim is right, that it's just. The whole world says it. The United Nations supports these general principles that, that we're arguing. And, and that's a morally powerful uh, argument to be able to make. From that cultural Indigenous perspective, where do uh, the uh, First Nations peoples of this country sit, uh, bearing in mind what's happened and the fact that they're not even being able to have a say about their own land and being able to conduct their own sacred ceremonies on their land? Well, that's right, and I think that's exactly why we can describe the Indigenous property right as a, a lesser one in Queensland's colonial law to the rights of, of freehold title that people have over the, the houses they buy and, and, and such like. Indeed, Queensland has given Adani freehold title to this land. And, and what extinguishing of native title means is that those rights can never be restored. If, if Adani chose not to go ahead with the mine, for example, for whatever reason, um, those rights that have been lost could not be restored. So it's a permanent land confiscation and a very serious breach of international norms of justice and 
of democratic equality. It's a very clear way of saying to Indigenous peoples, your citizenship doesn't mean as much as other people. It's a lesser kind of citizenship. And we see that in all sorts of other ways, but this is a very graphic and very recent example of that, I think. That was uh, Associate Professor Dominic O'Sullivan from the uh, Charles Sturt University speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing soon from a uh, team leader from Territory Families talking uh, with Karma's Demi Williams very soon. But before then, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back with that interview. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into our next story now. Uh, National Child Protection Week began on Sunday, the 1st of September, and this year's theme is Children Thrive When Parents Are Supported. The theme also relates to the guiding principles of territory families that uh, children and young people have the right to live in a caring and nurturing environment. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with uh, Darren Burns, a team leader from Territory Families who works in the uh, Lurcher and Pindaby communities of uh, west uh, of west of Mbantu Alice Springs. The theme of this year's Child Protection Week is uh, kids do well uh, when parents are supported. And that's very much the theme of uh, Territory Families. So uh, I'm the team leader for uh, the Lower Chip Interview Catchment. Uh, so I lead a team of uh, remote staff uh, and practitioners as well across all of the different communities within the, the catchment area um, here. So that involves Panya, Kintour, Big, and Hats Bluff. So um, the focus is very much on um, kind of individualizing, I guess, uh, the supports and the services that are in each of these communities. It's been led, I guess, by um, the people in those communities and the elders as well. Um, so in terms of supporting parents, uh, that's really around um, kind of advocating uh, for services that are needed uh, that would help support parents. So it could be counselling, um, housing, um, centering finance, stuff like that, or health. Um, and it would also be around um, working with parents to support them, like kind of around uh, behaviour management and stuff as well. What sort of things have been, that are in place, that have been working successfully? So something that we um, do every month now in each of these communities is we have um, what they're called child safety meetings. So it's an opportunity for um, like the elders and all the services to come together uh, and have a talk about what's the important issues um, in these communities um, and what the community thinks uh, is the best way forward with those. Like you said, you wanted to get you know support in helping parents to mm-hmm. with counselling, housing, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, yeah. what, what are some of the other ones that are that are very important that um, need drastic action? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on you know each of the the communities. I mean, communities have strong leadership and strong support from the elders. So, I mean, we very much take the lead from each community. And I mean, in terms of, yeah, it tends to be around like kind of budgeting, um, housing, healthcare, and also, I guess, using the supports that are in the community. So, I mean, uh, Kintor and Papania have um, programs around families as first teachers. So it provides support, I guess, for parents in these communities around parenting supports and around um, how they can support their kids. Because obviously, I mean, parents have the, the primary responsibility for looking after the children, and it's around uh, territory families providing that support to enable them to do that. 
Have you seen uh, the number of parents um, wanting to, uh, you know, engage or, or participate in these programs growing over the years? I don't have any data, hard data, for over the years because I'm actually only been team leading this position for for a year. But I mean, in terms of the year that I've been here, I mean, definitely, I think there's been much more of a focus on tertiary tertiary families being proactive and and parents and communities seeing that around that it's it's our role to to kind of to help families because i mean obviously there's a lot of um you know stresses and in life like we all do around um dealing with stuff and it's around helping families to to navigate that to to navigate those choppy waters yeah and and i mean you know having that um extra support for the parents as well can really help Oh, absolutely, of course. And I mean, the thing about kind of children and parents is that they're always connected to very strong family. And it's about kind of working together as a, as a family. Because, I mean, what's the old saying? It takes, a, it takes a village to raise a child. And I was just wondering as well, um, you know, some of the uh, principles uh, that uh, tertiary families have, you know, children... And young people are entitled to live in a caring and nurturing environment, you know, protected Absolutely. from harm and exploitation. What, what yep. other things do you really, um, um, you know, advocate and push to sort of help those children live in those safe environments? It's really about, I guess, um, kind of catching stuff early. So focusing on um, kind of being more proactive rather than reacting to stuff. Um, that's already happened. So that's why it's really super important to, to provide that support to the communities and to the families um, and to the parents around, um, kind of, uh, that they've got that support around everything that they need um, rather than letting things get to, to the stage where children actually need protection. And how important is it to, you know, sort of lift up the child? I mean, like, let them know that they're doing well and, and, and that kind of, you know, mental sort of uh, support as well. Oh, that's hugely important, hugely important. Because, I mean, obviously, kids are, you know, they're our future generation. And I think sometimes it's quite easy to focus on, like, kind of what's not going right and, um, like, kind of, especially within children's lives. But, uh, I mean, children have so many strengths as do communities and families. And it's really around building on those many strengths rather than focusing on, on what's not going right. Because I guess with every, with every person, every family, every community, there's always things that, that aren't perfect, but it's, it is about focusing on, on what's going right and, and building on that. And Darren, like you were saying before, I mean, you know, mm. as we know, every community is different. Mm. Uh, how do you sort of go go about sort of, um, f- trying to find what works in each community? Listening to the community, I guess, would be the the simple answer, I guess. And that's why heritage families are kind of really focusing, I guess, on on getting the the views of of the community because I mean I would be the first to say this is not these are not my communities um, so it's not up to, to me to be making these decisions it is actually up to the community themselves and and the elders within these communities so that we're being led by their knowledge by by their skills uh, by their wishes and then like having services listen to, to that so that we can use that to, to provide better support yeah I really think you know where a lot of people fall down it is not talking to the community and, and not 
understanding what they need and what they want. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, because it's, I mean, parents and communities have the primary responsibility for looking after their children. And it's around us not telling communities what to do, but around listening about what support is needed and, and advocating for that support so that communities and families get that. On that note, uh, Darren Burns, thanks very much for uh, talking to us here on Cam Radio. All right, Damien, thank you so much for, for letting us um, have a chat about uh, National Child Protection Week and about what Territory Families are doing. That was uh, Darren Burns, the uh, team leader of Territory Families in the uh, Lurchapintipi area, ending that report from uh, Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country very soon. But before then, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Cam Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Thursday morning. Great to have your company. I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio by Karma's Paul Wiles and Damien Williams. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's time for the uh, news from around the country. We'll start with you, Paul. I understand you've got a story this morning in regards to uh, a a prestigious art award. Correct. From last night, the uh, Vincent Lingiari Art Award. The winner was announced and uh, Northern Territory artist and senior law woman Eunice Napanunga-Jack has won the $15,000 Vincent Lingiari Art Award Prize for her painting Kuruyultu. Uh, the award, uh, the inaugural award at least, um, s- celebrated 40 years since the passage of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act and 50 years since the Wave Hill walk-off. The uh, 23 entries from across Central Australia and beyond in this year's award reflect the artist's personal truths. Who uh, the artists tell stories ranging from the fallout of the Maralinga, Maralinga nuclear test to reconciliation, housing and road construction in media, um, how, sorry, housing and road construction through uh, various forms of media such as sculpture, ceramics, uh, video installation, and painting. Uh, the um, widely acclaimed artist is from the remote community of. Kunji, Hearts Bluff, approximately three hours' drive west of Alice Springs. Uh, Mrs Jack has held 11 solo exhibitions and she's been a finalist in many art prestigious awards, including several times in the Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Award, but this is only her second art prize. So uh, congratulations uh, to Eunice Napanunga-Jack. And definitely, uh, you know, Obviously, got to recognise all that, the hard work, like you mentioned, the different things that everyone else sort of entered theirs in as well. And it's great to see, you know, mob getting that mob getting that recognition for the work that they're putting in and the art that they're doing. Well, uh, the comments from the judge um, says uh, the judge uh, Glenn. I say, Pilkington said, Miss Jack's work speaks to the story of her life, her birth, and her cultural inheritance which informs all that she paints and all that she is and where she belongs. Uh, doesn't get any better. Mm. Well, one of the things that I like uh, about um, you know, the Aboriginal art scene now is that 
it's expanding, you know, from our traditional yeah. um, fine arts, you know, on canvas and, and stuff like that to now, yeah, just, you know, installations, pottery, um, furniture, clothing even, you know, going yeah. to the runways of Milan and, yeah, just um, getting really up there in the world. It's an explosion art. of culture, isn't it? Yeah. Through the arts, which is... And, and there really does seem to be that demand for it. Like, like you were just talking about furniture and things like that. I did that interview, uh, I think mm. it was last week, about the different light installations and things like that. Yeah. And there seems to be a, a really big interest to, you know, get involved in that space or to, to mm. whether it be in art or, or whatever it may be. One of the that. awesome things I saw as well was, um, you know, with the lighting technology and nowadays, they can do 3D projections like mm. like I saw you know the Adelaide Fringe Festival when I was there for WOMAD like just driving past the, the Adelaide River there and you see this awesome um, projection of this of this uh, painted up traditional man doing smoking ceremonies and that kind of stuff as a huge projection on the right. water it was right. amazing mm. yeah what is uh, also amazing Damo is that uh, um it's taken some time, but the oldest living, surviving culture on Earth, uh, 80,000 years plus, finally, the world is catching up yeah. and starting to look at uh, what's been around for such a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, is, it is awesome to see. And, and like, you know, with the Parajima Festival, with those projections of art, huge projections, it's, it's amazing. Mm. Well, on to our, our next story now, Damo, on to you. I understand you've got a story in regards to uh, cutting youth crime in a top-end community. Yeah, so um, this one has uh, come from uh, the Minister for Territory Families, Dave Wakefield's uh, media, that the Territory Labor government is tackling youth crime in Catherine in the Catherine region by working with the local Aboriginal organisation, Kalano, to develop youth diversion programs. The Kalano Community Association will receive $1.5 million over five years to develop community youth diversion programs in Catherine and the and surrounds in Beswick, Baranga and Mataranka. The partnership with the Kalano uh, with Kalano came out of the local decision-making process, which is a territory Labor government commitment to transfer decision-making and government service delivery to Aboriginal uh, control in uh, around the Territory. Um, the community youth diversion programs will be aimed at children and young people who are referred by the Northern Territory Police or local or Supreme Courts. Uh, the program will be led by Aboriginal leaders who will determine what actions young offenders will undertake to repair the harm they have caused in the community. Um, rest- restorative actions may include housing repairs, uh, mechanical repairs, maintenance and essential services um, with these programs will be operated in October. So, yeah, trying to, um, you know, sort of get those young people to sort of repay or even, um, yeah, just learn to... I, I guess it's part of that process in terms of understanding the actual impact when mm. they then have to, I guess... You know, where it's like patching up a wall or whatever it may be. Painting a 200 metre fence. <laughs> yeah, something like that, where it's essentially, you know, you get to see the amount of work and, and things that's involved in, in what you did within the action. So I guess it's perhaps maybe, you know, helping people understand that, you know, the consequences of their actions, I guess. Mm. Mm. And there's another one as well the um, Back on Track program that um, will be. 
in Catherine will include wilderness camps, victim um, confirmed conferencing, um, early intervention and prevention programs as well for children under the age of the criminal response uh, and vet programs as well. So I've always um, yeah thought that you know diversionary programs like going out bush and sitting down and talking with them young people, especially because a lot of them just feel lost and mm. and you know a bit angry with the world as a lot of young people are you know they're confused they're you know trying to find their way in the world so i think you know just sitting down and talking with them will will help mm. a lot often a lot of those programs the successful programs from the past have done just that actually yeah. giving time to the kids um it doesn't matter what uh, you know what ethnic group we're talking about i mean if kids get bored they go looking for entertainment and sometimes mm. that you know getting into mischief uh, i mean even as a child myself growing up here in alice i, I remember you know when we were bored you'd get into trouble somewhere yeah, yeah. so uh, you know basically giving the kids time in dedicated programs that are ongoing not just one off uh, you know uh, i mean it has to be a, an ongoing um, commitment to work with youth right across the territory yeah Exactly. And I guess a good thing that you were mentioning is that a lot of that aspect, it sounds like there's going to be very heavily involvement in terms of the Aboriginal organisations and people within mm, the communities. Yeah. And I, th I think that is going to be a key aspect in terms of addressing those things is, as we know, that the mob obviously have the understanding and then yeah. there's that, I guess, you know, level of respect and understanding from the mob, you know, when you've got, you know, to, you know your older generations yeah. <laughs> sort of uh, talking through that process like you were saying. And especially when it is a lot of our young people that um, are unfortunately, um, you know, going to going to court and stuff like that. Mm. It's um, getting it from the elders. I think just add a bit more power. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Damien, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news around the country. Thank you. All right, we're going to go to a track now, and then we'll be right back. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. We're going to head across to the Pilbara region of Western Australia now, where an old pub is being redeveloped into a community gathering centre. The opening of the uh, Gunnalili Centre will take place on Saturday, the 7th of September, in the community of Roeburn and uh, the opening will be marked by a cultural by cultural ceremonies as well as musical performances. Yesterday, I spoke with the chief executive officer of the Indigbandi Aboriginal Corporation, Michael Woodley, and he begins by explaining uh, what the centre is all about. Generally, in terms of what that means, and, and, and the elders who chose that name, you know, chose it deliberately. It's everybody word for dawning, and and that's what the building represents a new dawning in our community where change is coming, you know, for all the positive reasons. That's what the centre represents, really. It's a, you know, a community hub or centre that now, you know, uh, has, been trans has been transformed into providing information and, and things of assisting people with self-determination around helping themselves. So it's been a good journey in terms of you know, seeing that development now come to fruition. Can, can you elaborate a bit in terms of how it's sort of going to be, you know, assisting those individuals that, that are going to be coming to this place? When we said that we were going to redevelop and establish into a community hub, we, we wanted a one-stop shop, so to speak, where organisations, government agencies, industries, and all, all, all of these players that have, has an interest in that community in providing opportunities around training, jobs, or other things. We wanted them to be located in one in one place, so when when the people go to this centre, they can 
obviously didn't have the opportunity to speak with several different people about you know several different opportunities and things that they might want to do. So it's been designed that way where obviously it, it, it like I said it doesn't you don't have to get people running around uh, one side of town to the other looking for opportunities. We've just about have the office space now with those organisations mentioned just about full. And in terms of um, I guess how it's sort of going to be run is it, is it run as a like a collaborative type thing? Obviously, you know, uh, we'll be managed, you know, by the different people, obviously. But again, you know, uh, run where it's a it's a it's a hub that provides community service, and it, like I said, it gives it gives the people obviously one place where they can go and get several services where they need to sort of you know if they have inquiries about certain things. So that's what the intention is because you know it, it becomes more easier then for people to sort of you know go to one place and then have have all the queries sort of answered. And this space, sort of, all, all in Jibani mob then going to be able to access this, yeah? It's more than anybody. It's the Roman community, which is, okay. you know, a community of, of different language groups, um, you know, non-Indigenous people as well. So it's a, it's a community out for everyone who lives in the community of Roman. And in terms of what you hope this space will mean for the mob, uh, you know, talking about it being a dawning, what, what, what are your aspirations for the centre? Well, it's to encourage people that we can take on a ruin. That was a place where... It really provided, you know, a lot of negative stuff. You know, it used to be an old, it used to be an old, old, old pub slash hotel. You know, so you know, back in the early days of the community history, and it's, it's especially tying this place around, uh, to the first mining booms and all that stuff that took place here. It where you know a lot of a lot of negativity started. You know, and every you know, people who were uh, over denied the opportunities in the industry as well had only welfare, and then a place like this. You know, the Victoria Hotel, where they used to go and sort of drown their sorrows or, or hide their shame, really. Um, and it became a generational thing where a lot of people, even you know, myself and my age group, also went down that same path. What we're hoping that the new redevelopment would, would, would do is recognize that history, but also say, well, look, here's an opportunity where I think, you know, the legacy is to is to continue sort of providing now positive stuff for our people of the Roman community to be a part of and do positive things and, and, and things around self-determination and helping then the next generation to also you know follow that path. And, and just quickly, finally for you, Michael, I understand there is going to be um, some exciting sort of you know music and stuff happening as well at the opening. What, what, what can people expect at that opening? Program for the day, there'll be you know proper creation stories, you know, you know, depicting the you know some of the Dreamtime history of the Yibundi people and what what those stories mean. There'll be local musicians playing as well, you know, covering local songs. It's more of a of a community fun day where people are happy to express themselves without any pressure. And then we've also had the lo- local elders performing uh, what we call Dreamtime uh, songs and dances. Um, and then, well, Dream Time and Culture Songs and Dances, and then we're going to you know, close the night with, you know, having having a special a guest to perform at the show, the Spinifex Gum, featuring the Malaga Choir, singing some songs that they've also took from the Yibani, you know, stories and histories. So, yeah, it's, it's more of giving back to the community and then letting the community know Roman as well. We have a lot of friends out there. Mm, definitely sounds like, it, you know, it's a great way in terms of setting that tone in terms of, you know, the idea behind the centre, like you were saying, mixing, you know, the culture, the music, uh, you know, the whole community aspect of it as well. No, exactly. It's really just, you know, to like I said, give give thanks and recognition to the community people and let them know that, look, there's nothing to be afraid of in terms of moving forward and stepping up to the responsibilities and taking, you know, taking some leadership around helping change develop for the better.
And I think by having having this event and uh, a lot of people coming as well from you know various various organisations and agencies, it just goes to show as well that we have a lot of support out there, you know. Um, and that's the only way that we can really start moving forward together by having programs like this and, and and making everybody in the community and and wider community also feel a part of this. So you know, it's it's not a it's not only indigenous thing; it's also something that we can share with non-indigenous you know people as well who also help us on this journey. So it's very important for that you know bridging of the gap, so to speak. That was Michael Woodley, the Chief Executive Officer of the Indijibandi Aboriginal Corporation. You're listening to Strong Voices coming to you from the studios of Karma Radio in Alice Springs. If you have a story that you would like us to cover, please get in contact with us. Send us an email to news at karma.com.au or give us a call on 0889 we're going to head into our final story now. Our children from the Nullumboy Primary School in the Northern Territory showcased their work at the Sydney Opera House yesterday. Uh, yesterday did mark National uh, Indigenous Literacy Day, I should say, sorry. And the uh, Indigenous Literacy Foundation has started an initiative to publish books from rural Aboriginal communities in their own languages. The wise uh, Phoebe uh, Christophe files this report. <laughs> That was the Newland Boy students presenting their book, I Saw, We Saw, at the Sydney Opera House to celebrate Indigenous Literacy Day. The book is written in their native languages to help promote literacy in rural communities nationwide. I spoke to Tina Ray, the Indigenous Programs Manager, on what this day meant for the children. Look, what it really means is that we, not only our charity, but the wider Australia really validates um, that their stories and their language is as important as any other language out there. To have them produced in a book like this sort of puts it at a at an equal level to uh, other books out there that, you know, produced and available for, for people to, to purchase and, and read and enjoy and share. And how excited were the students to be able to share their work at the Sydney Opera House? Oh, they were so excited. A little bit nervous, but once they saw that people were here and they were behind them, that they were here to, you know, read it and and enjoy it with them, they really were proud. They stood up there and just spoke from the heart and they read really beautifully. It was a really great celebration um, of their achievement and, and we couldn't be more happier for them. Since beginning this project with the rural communities, has the Indigenous Literacy Foundation seen an increase in literacy levels? That's a really tricky question. Um, We're not so much about teaching reading. It's more about providing access to great quality books, to be involved in producing books um, that will engage kids in, in reading. So, you know, it's based on the belief that you can't learn to read if you don't have a great book. So a lot of the communities that we uh, offer our free programs to don't have much access to uh, books or even print material. There's no road signs, you know, there's no newspapers or anything. So that's a really challenging task to even, you know, um, be exposed to uh, any kind of prints. So what we're about is engaging kids in actually just picking up and developing that interest in and, and love of reading. I know that there are hundreds of languages or dialects within Indigenous culture. So
So does the ILF cater for these differences between rural communities? Yeah, as much as we can. You know, before our settlement, there were over 250 languages spoken, over 500 different dialects. Um, at the moment, there's only about 50-odd languages that are considered strong, which means that they're spoken from, you know, two babies and, and right through all the generations. And we're doing our best to service as many as we can. Publishing books in language is part of our program that's really grown. Um, over the years and the interest around that is um, spreading like wildfire uh, which is really exciting. Is it a part of your goal as well to educate other Australians about the Indigenous languages? Look it's not a direct part of our goal but obviously when we are producing books like this when we do hold events like Indigenous Literacy Day it is an outcome that that is comes from that. We have lots of people ringing us from schools or from, you know, all types of organisations and even individuals, you know, parents and grandparents saying, oh, we'd love to, you know, share with our kids and our grandkids or our students, um, you know, different languages, books by Indigenous people. Can you tell me what's next for the students from Newland Boy Primary School? Look, there's already talk of, you know, what, what's the next book going to be or, you know, what they'd like to do. Just being in Sydney is a huge thing for them. Many of them haven't been out of their small community some of them have been, you know, as far as Darwin. Um, but to be in Sydney, um, they've just embraced this whole big city life and catching trains and things. They're off to the uh, aquarium shortly um, this afternoon. They're visiting some schools in Sydney. They're off at the zoo tomorrow. So really, they're just experiencing the big wide world. And, you know, it's about opening up their worldview as to what are the potentials and the possibilities. You know, they could be an author and still remain in their communities. They could could be an illustrator and remain in their communities or they could you know move to Sydney one day and and who knows they're an absolutely talented group of uh, kids uh, we had some boys reading completely in their first language Yonamata you know incredibly talented kids and, and we can't wait to see where they go to next from here. That was uh, Tina Ray, Indigenous Programs Manager at the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, ending that report from the wires of Phoebe Christoffi there. That's going to conclude uh, Strong Voices for this Thursday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you missed the program, I'll be looking to post up a podcast of the show on Karma SoundCloud. Uh, tomorrow we'll be back again, but with a recap of the week from Strong Voices. Strong Voices. Strong Voices.